Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So, take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello, guys and girls. The program you are about to hear will be both fun and educational, but it is not a substitute for medical advice. Although we are doctors, we are not your doctors. Hello and welcome to Travel Medicine. As always, I'm your friendly neighborhood internal medicine doc, Dr. J. Hey guys, coming to you from my beautiful lab space, this is Dr. Santosh, your pediatric infectious disease doctor and researcher. And it's Dr. Ward here, your ER MacGyver with a velvet voice and velvet hands. And this is Dr. Praz, the Sandman, slipping you my IV roofies through the radio waves. But in a totally legal and consensual way. Exactly. Very different from <laughs> So in a wonderful coincidence, we actually have the whole crew together tonight. I can't even remember the last time this happened. <laughs> we have an exciting show this week. Exciting because we're interviewing somebody from a specialty that up until a few weeks ago, I didn't even know existed. Very rare. Very rare for the Josh to not know. And even more, perhaps a little embarrassing for me, is that uh, you guys know among, among my many interests and hobbies, of course, is a deep interest in palliative care, uh, quality of life, hospice, end of life type situations. And what we are going to be talking t- about today is a lot of palliative and specifically death doulaing. Uh, not fighting like Alexander Hamilton, but the actual doula itself. So before we go too far off topic, and I promise you, listeners, we absolutely will, let's get around to introducing the very first and only death doula I have ever had the pleasure of meeting, Jasmine Tomlins. 
Yay! Hello. Hello, hello. It's good to be here. I forgive you for not knowing about me, because there are probably, like, 300, 400, maybe, death doulas in the country. Let's talk a little bit about this. Of course, you know, I can't let a single episode go by without going into a little bit of history. And I get to talk about, well, I think you all know where this is going. Back to Victorian era! Now, the now the way we've handled death in this country has changed numerous times over the years. And while traditionally most of us think of death as being in a hospital, or maybe just those of us who work in the medical field are used to people dying in hospitals with tubes and lines looking like they belong in the matrix. Mm-hmm. In fact, back in the Victorian era... It was very common to keep a dead body around for a while for as part of the grieving process. Uh, children used to help their families prepare the body for funerals. And in fact, in Victorian times, they would do photographs of the whole family with the dead person dressed and sitting, propped up to look like it was a regular family portrait. Uh, so these, you know, the only time you would have a family picture, it would be very rare for everyone in the portrait to be alive. But damned if that was going to make them turn around like we got the whole family together we're doing this yeah. kind of like how we record this podcast absolutely absolutely which one of you is dead right now Still, like good. i'm a little under the weather but like i'm okay i'm, so, <laughs> I'm not quite ready for jasmine's services yet <laughs> we really didn't start moving death from the home to the hospital until mid-1800s, around the time of the Civil War. And that's when, really, the concept of modern embalming started. And that was mostly to help preserve the body solely to bring soldiers back intact so their families could grieve. Before that, it was all home funerals. Now, when somebody dies, you, ten- you generally put them in a coffin and bury them right away. But in this mid-period, when we were transitioning to the embalming practice, uh, people used to put – first, they put bodies on ice, and they would ship them to preserve them back. Later, they started injecting them with chemicals. Uh, one of the most popular initial preservatives – and we could talk about embalming in an upcoming mini-sode – is was arsenic which worked out really really well to preserve but it also made forensics very difficult because it allowed you to poison people pretty much indiscriminately and then just say no 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 i didn't poison him with arsenic he was already dead and i was just trying to make sure the body stayed preserved to get back to the family member Um, and a little bit of this was the inspiration that idea was kind of the inspiration behind the old comedy arsenic and old lace so be careful of be careful of elderly ladies. They they will sneak up on you when you least expect it. But now that I've now that I've gotten my obligatory Victorian historical references out of the way, let's talk a little bit about what it is that a death doula actually does. So Jasmine, what are you? <laughs> what are you really? <laughs> what, what are you? <laughs> um, so. Most people are familiar with the term doula as it pertains to birth. Um, The word itself is Greek. Uh, It is a serving woman. So uh, there are are male doulas now. Um, In fact, the the person who first started talking about uh, end-of-life doulas and this kind of care was a a fellow, and that was in 2003. Uh, So it's very new as far as a profession. 
people started noticing that there were a lot of principles in the care of a mother who is giving birth that were useful for the dying. So a lot of comforting, a lot of sort of talking about the processes and lifting some of the veil up and letting people know what they can expect to happen, uh, answer their questions, be there in the room with them, uh, make sure that family members are being taken care of, just being sort of a, a comforting presence that has been there before so you don't have to be scared. So they were using a lot of these things and thought, okay, well, let's, let's use these for the dying as well. And so death care started uh, as, as far as doulas. Some of the things you're mentioning, Jasmine, in both birth and the death experience, doctors and nurses, are not, we just do not have the training, the expertise, or time to do. Mm-hmm. And I'm finding that the patients, this role is sorely lacking in our healthcare system right now. Yeah, definitely. I mean, doctors and nurses are, you're all excellent and everyone has their place, but you are like super busy. You have a lot of patients that you have to see. And the the plus of having a doula, whether birth or death, is that that person is beholden only to you and will be there with you through that entire process. And, you know, is not getting up to leave or, you know, I can be there for the entire death process. I, I don't have any other demands on my time. My time is for the, the person who's dying. There are a lot of settings in which a person can die, as you know. I mean, they could die in their home, they could die in an ICU, they could die in a hospice, they could die pretty much anywhere. Is there any particular setting that you cover or you just sort of all branch out to all these different areas? Pretty much any space. Yeah, no, anywhere someone's dying is, <laughs> is a place that I'll go. How do, how do people usually end up contacting That sounds like the worst superhero power yeah. ever. Someone about to die? On my way! Oh, <laughs> the, the worst and the best, right? Because you go there and then you're there to comfort them. Yeah. But, you know, there's also death all the time. <laughs> and also death. <laughs> I'm just picturing Superman, like, someone's in trouble, and he gets there right, he's like, I'm very sorry, and I wish you the best. <laughs> On to the next person! <laughs> that, yep, and I have x-ray vision also. Nice. <laughs> that's not true. That's not. <laughs> Thanks for clarifying. By the way, that's not true. <laughs> As if I didn't want to leave. Oh, no, no, no! On. I just love the idea of one of our listeners going. I knew it. <laughs> I knew it. <laughs> they're calling. They're calling the feds right now. Well, so okay. Batman knows that there's trouble when there's a bat signal up in the clouds. How, how do you end up? I mean, how do you end up getting what's your, contacted? What's your bat signal, Jasmine? Um, wow, I wish I had a bat signal. That would be very, very cool, but probably prohibitively expensive. Uh, basically, what happens is so there there are symptoms that uh, if you're with hospice, the hospice nurse will know what's going on as far as what symptoms to look out for. They'll they'll let the families know, or I'll let the families know what symptoms you'll you can expect to see during the active dying process and when that starts happening then it's time for them to give me a call uh and then i will come and be there um so are you usually contacted by a hospice nurse or hospice team member or by families directly how do people first learn about you so that's that's an interesting thing i'm i'm just still just starting out so i'm sort of building things the way that people are getting in touch with me is either 
through the internet, mostly world word of mouth, actually. When I started talking about what I was doing, I had friends who would contact me and they'd want to talk about their elderly relatives or their parents who were getting older and hadn't really started thinking about end of life and they didn't know what to do and they didn't want to get caught off guard. Everybody has these questions, you know, what am I going to do if my parent dies? I don't know what forms I need. I don't I don't know any funeral homes in the area. Oh, wow. I don't know any of these things. What if they die? This is terrifying. And it is terrifying. There's so much stuff that you need to know and no one talks about right. it. Right. Yeah, absolutely. So you serve kind of almost as a, a life coach or a death coach? Yeah, <laughs> it's sort of like a life coach. I don't, I feel like saying, is is saying death coach gauche? Like, no, no, <laughs> can I say no. that? So That's pretty much exactly right. <laughs> Sorry. No, I, I don't think death coach is a bad thing to say at all. It's, it's a little bit of, I, I shouldn't say an opposite, but almost like a compliment to what uh, I'm used to seeing in pediatrics, which is a birth doula. So uh, mm -hmm. this is the person, of course, who assists in, you know, bringing someone into the world. And I think more than anything else in medicine as a philosophy, so any caretakers out there, we're really transitioning from this phase of going from this really paternalistic, like, this is the way we must regard, you know, death kind of thing. Mm -hmm. into a uh, a more, you know, this is just another transition. You know, birth is a transition, and we have to deal with it in one particular way. And life, uh, you know, life is also a transition, so. On your definition, Santosh, my mom would make a great doula because she's always telling me, I brought you into this take world and out. I can take you out of it. <laughs> See, yeah, there you go. Personally, knowing your mom, she's a wonderful person. She's a dear friend. I believe her. Not idle um, friend. <laughs> yes, no. So, so let's talk. So let's talk a little bit about what kind of training or certification do you have to take to become a doula? What's involved in this? And is death doula your preferred title, or what? What? Do you, what do people in your field prefer to be addressed as? So there are actually a number of different segments of the field. Uh, I guess if you want to sub subspecialties, maybe some people don't like to say death because the culture. So they like to talk more about I'm an end of life doula. I divide it as as my program divided it into sort of five separate sections. There's end of life doulas, and that's when you. Uh, you talk to people about all the, the advanced directives that they need to have, uh, posts, which are new to a lot of people, um, all of the... Posts, of course, for those of you at home, being what we uh, call often advanced directives. What things would you want done in the exact moment? Would you want chest compressions? Would you want intubation? Would you want electric shocks? If you are resuscitated but otherwise unable to communicate? Do you want tube feedings or life extending measures? Things like that. That's what's involved in what we call a pulsed form. Yeah, and there's there's so much that can be done these days with the, the science that we have. Uh, just really heroic efforts that can be done. So you really sort of have to decide, well, do I want those things? Do I want all of those things? 
Um, and under what circumstances do I want them? And so I talk to people about under what circumstances they want them. What does quality of life mean to you? All of those questions so that they have a better idea and they're better informed as to how to fill out these advanced directives that talk about what care they want in the event that they are sick or they're, uh, they get injured or they're in the end of life process. So that's what the end of life doula is for. Um, you can also talk to people about methods of disposition. Uh, if you want to be buried, if you want to be cremated, if you want to be cremated and then shot into space, <laughs> that's a thing. Sure. Mm-hmm. Sure. Uh, absolutely. Uh, how about thrown into a volcano? I, I you can be thrown into a volcano. Into a just volcano. ask the people who own the volcano. <laughs> I mean, I like I like making sure that my local island gods are appeased every so often. <laughs> That's so important. Thank you for that. You know, um, I have to say, like, based on what I've seen, like, I um, part of my background, in addition to doing anesthesia, some of our listeners know, I'm also um, a clinically trained intensivist. Mm-hmm. And so, well, during my times in the ICU, I see a lot of um, end-of-life issues. And um, sort of like what you're saying... There's a lot of things that we can do with our science and with the technology that we have in medicine. And um, things like DNR, comfort care, hospice, they're really not as clear-cut as most people think. There's a lot of gray areas, and when people don't explicitly write down what they do want or what they don't want, we're often left um, guessing or just going along with whatever their power of attorney or whatever family member is there. A lot of times, Um, I I think it's fair to say, Praz, that we end up with family members who maybe don't know what the end-of-care plan is supposed to be for a loved one because they've never discussed it or they maybe don't know their loved one as dearly as they thought they did. So that's a tough thing. And me dealing with pediatrics, it it becomes even more extreme because all of a sudden this is a child. You know, this is a little kid. It's no longer, you know, you don't have the chance to think about, oh, you know, older person or something like that. No, no, no. This is a teeny tiny life. And you don't ever expect for this person to die this, this quickly, right. this abruptly. Those are those are especially the things that people definitely don't want to prepare for, and I feel like no one no one should have to in a perfect no world no one would to, have exactly. to prepare for them. But it's Absolutely. it's also the sort of thing where if you are prepared or you do have some thoughts at least about what you'd like to do, um, it's going to be of exponential comfort during the process when you're actually going through all of the arrangements because legally, of course, you have to eventually go through all of these arrangements. And so knowing what you're going to do or having some idea of what your mother wanted um, or even better, if, uh, if we talked to her and we figured out exactly what she wanted, even down to what flowers she wants at the memorial or what what joyful remembrance actually means to her. Like, Does she mean... She wants people to laugh. Does it mean she just wants to talk about the good times? That sort of thing. Uh, the more instructions you can give, the less of a burden there is during the grieving process for the people sure, that are left sure. behind. So you really get very detail-oriented in, in the, I guess, the death part of the services, in all of them. But mm-hmm. you, you plan things like death vigils? Yes. Uh, yeah. What, what are those? So death vigils. Uh, so death vigils are part of 
the death doula part, which is after the end of life doula. And that is the actual active process of dying. Um, we'll talk to people about what kind of music do they want. Do they want people doing readings? Do they want people singing or playing instruments? Uh, would they like people to hold their hand? Who, who do they want around them? Um, what family members do they want there? Do they want everyone in the room at the same time? Do they only want to be visited one at a time with people? Do they want their hair brushed? Would they like you know, their, their covers taken off and put back on again? And what degree of comfort do they want? And all of these things during the process, uh, talking about what, would, what does their, their best death sure. look like? And then how do we get as close to that as we can? Interesting. And that's very, very different from how most people tend to die in a hospital, with a few exceptions of people who are on hospice floors or facilities. You know, you, you definitely don't get mood music. At best, my phone might ring, and then you'll get the gummy bears theme. While You need to change that theme. <laughs> it is getting a little awkward. You know, I have patients bouncing here and there and everywhere. <laughs> it's a very it's a very different process dying in a hospital versus dying at home. And even after the death, you know, usually I will come in and I'll pronounce a patient and then I walk out and it's very much Wizard of Oz. I everything happens behind the curtain and I wave my wand and things just take place and that's it. So what what about Let's say you've you've planned somebody's death vigil with them. You've talked about the kind of light and smells and sounds and touch and all these different senses you're sort of stimulating as they are transitioning to the next phase of whatever comes after this. What happens once that person's dead? As you know, during birth, uh, those things can go awry. Wait, what? So it's really all about... No, we, we can, <laughs> what? <laughs> they what? I was ready for you to die, and this person stood up and came back to life? Great, zombies, just what I need. <laughs> Not that far awry. <laughs> Sorry, that was... Yeah, that's, that's okay. crazy. We can talk about in the event of a zombie apocalypse afterwards. I just mean in the, in the event that, you know, they say they want this music, but that music becomes really irritating to them during the active death process. Or they said they wanted massage, but their skin is too sure, sensitive to have massage. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just, it's really important to be sort of quick on your feet and just be there for that person, whatever they need. If it goes off plan, you know, you're just there for them. Let's, let's do this however so it's going to So you're usually happen. there during the death vigil? Yes. Yep, I'm there for the entire process. Who uh, else is there? Whoever, I mean, the, the person who's dying, <laughs> hopefully is there. Right. And then sometimes, uh, I guess the hospice nurse, uh, the family, whoever is able to make it. Sometimes I'm, I'm able, if, if there are families who are out of town, they can call me and I will go and be with their loved one in the hospital uh, until they can get there. So well, you're just, on call. I'm on call, yeah. Wow. Well, let me just say that from my experience, hate to be a bummer, but usually when someone dies in a hospital, that that last moment, it, it's usually not a good experience for, for the nurses, docs, family members, and anyone mm-hmm. else who's present. Do you have any, have you noticed what can make it into a better experience, if that's possible? As far as the process, I feel like information is critical. Just making sure that everybody knows what happens, uh, what's happening now, the symptoms as they they come and go, just so no one starts 
you know, they hear the, the breath changing and all of that, and, and that can cause a lot of fear. Sure, sure. Um, Are you talking about the death rattle or the... Yeah. And, and, you know, a lot, of, a lot of people will think that must hurt, they must be in pain, and so being able to explain that, no, it, it's, that's because there's congestion and it's okay, they're, they're not in pain. Um, just being there as a stabilizing force can really help. Someone who's there for the family and who is there on call, sure, sure. I guess. Um, so, I mean, you're, you're on call, which is a, kind of a very interesting concept as somebody who is forced to be on call that you are in some ways also volunteering for though you really are a death batman death batman uh, i'm gonna put that on my resume yeah you're just you're called um, yeah you're you're called you're not always you know uh, except it's the reverse you are both the the death coach that someone needs and the one they deserve that's beautiful yeah yeah that's so nice um so so after okay, so after someone's died, you said there's five stages of training. What are what are some of these other stages or sections in your training that you had to undergo to prepare to be a doula? And once you've done all the training, are you an do you cover all these fields or do you specialize and say, I'm the end of life doula, I'm the death doula, I'm the after death doula? <laughs> How does this work? I will haunt you. <laughs> well, I mean, we're laughing about the after-death doula, but oh, that is dear. a thing. Uh, so the the next part, um, so death midwifery, or midwifery, or I don't, I don't even know. Midwifery? <laughs> death midwifery. Okay. So you could get a good whiff, but usually it's not. It's not something you want a midwiff of. Yes. <laughs> okay. So you, now you have to keep it in because of the joke. But so, so dead midwifery is. Uh, when you do home funerals, that's helping people to uh, get dry ice to uh, to show them how to set it and how to set the body on it so that the body is able to be preserved. Um, you help them wash the body. You help them turn the body. Uh, you help them clothe the body. Um, and this is so this is an instructional role uh, it's not me personally doing the washing it's the family mm -hmm. but I'm teaching them sort of how to do it and, and walking them through and a lot of it is just providing positive reinforcement like yes you are doing this right and people instinctively know how to care for their own dead we've, we've separated it out but just being there and saying yes that's right you're doing it right uh, here is how we can we can move the body um here is how, like, we'll put pillows here and this here so that you don't end up with any, any fluids leaking or anything like that that you don't want to happen during the, the memorial. Mm. So just helping them get all that together, helping them set up the memorial. Um, how soon does a memorial have to happen? I mean, I don't well, even know. There's not any so, laws or anything about this, is there? Yeah, well, there no, aren't. Practic uh, practicalities. Enough, there well, you can only keep a dead body in your house in California for up to, I believe, two weeks without some kind of special dispensation. But, well, that's but, but other states, I don't know. Well, traditionally, that's that's that has been my experience, is they want things taken care of from the funeral industry such as it is, if you are not going for a home burial. Uh, even if you are going for a home burial, in Illinois at least, and there are other places that require this, you are still required to have a funeral director's help. They need to, to get all the permits and, and certificates, and they need to, to oh, wow. oversee the process. 
you know, there's a lot of work that goes into dyeing and funeral preparation and everything. It's something a lot of people don't realize until they experience it. Mm-hmm. And in fact, you know, one of the things that I didn't start learning until I began working in palliative care is that it's pretty expensive not to exist. It sure is. To to own a copy of a death certificate, which you need, because otherwise, how else will you prove to people that you're dead? Which sounds very counterintuitive, but families do need death certificates to get special flight dispensation, to get other things accomplished. Um, So you do need these. And each of those certificates is about $100 a copy. And you need more than one. This is not like a social security card. It's not something you can put on your phone as an app and, you know, tap into the funeral home, tap into the, I don't know, the caterer, whatever. You need physical copies of these death certificates, and they are not cheap. And uh, we, I actually had a little bit of first-hand knowledge with this, uh, not here in the United States, but um, over in India, my uh, mother-in-law, actually, or grandmother-in-law, I should say, passed away. And it was a really scary thing to have to sit and, you know, go through that, not knowing what I needed or what I didn't need. It was, it was a scary experience. So having somebody like Jasmine to maybe serve as, I, I believe her words were <laughs> grief butler, uh, would be very helpful to you in that sort of setting. I wanted to mention one thing in here that we maybe don't think about as much in that when, Jasmine, I think you can speak to this a little bit, but when we have to mourn over a loved one or something like that, we're, we're quite vulnerable, aren't we, in terms of what we, you know, what we can be offered by various people, say a mortician or, um, you know, someone at the hospital who's talking about very particular services, we're a little bit at the mercy of whoever wants to sell us something. And this isn't to say that, you know, they're up to no good or anything like that. It's just a matter of fact that if we don't, if we don't watch out, you know, we can get taken advantage of because we're not really in a very good state of mind to make those decisions. It's definitely true that there there are a lot of wonderful, wonderful people in, in the funeral industry who really just want to take care of you. But you're also in a, a very, very vulnerable state of mind. So one of my, my primary jobs is to be an advocate for the family and to, to be there and to talk to them about what their budget is and what they want and to help them stay on that, to not let them feel guilty for not being able to pay for a more right, expensive right. casket that not feeling like that's that's not good enough or that they have to get their loved one embalmed or that the casket has to be sealed as tight as anything possible so that the rain doesn't get in, which causes exploding Whoa, casket syndrome. Nick. Do we know about exploding casket, casket syndrome? syndrome. Oh. Yes, we want to hear about yeah. exploding casket Yes, please. Now we're getting to the heart of the matter. You all know the, the body has a decomposition process that it goes through whether you like it or not even even if you get embalmed and so if you have a a very tightly sealed casket the process is still going on and so there there's gas being produced and it's in a very tightly sealed area now so over time there will be 
some difficulties with the casket, either like in, in some hinges or like there's a small crack because a rock shifted or something like that. And then that becomes a weak point and Whoa, it explodes. Underground or above? Underground. Uh, underground. Which is actually way cooler because imagine for a moment. You know, you're standing there. In fact, I almost want this to happen to me because you're standing there. Everybody's all gathered around the grave, and then boom! Big explosion of dirt, oh, <laughs> and man. people. Don't say that. That's somebody's dad. <laughs> no, if it was me, I'm saying I want me. Oh, you want you to explode? Specifically, I would love the idea of everybody gathered around, and then just the grave explodes, and I get that one last parting prank. All right. So well, what you want to do then is we'll talk and yeah. that you really want the most yeah, yeah, yeah. sealed casket, and uh, you also want some I don't know like helium balloons in oh, there with you or something like that. Eat a few burritos, Josh, before you. Can you imagine the helium, the helium oh. balloons? <laughs> I'm just here to make it happen. So if you really want to explode. You know, let's, let's whatever ridiculous things I want my death to be like changes weekly in whatever I find most amusing. Okay, well, update uh, your advanced directives, okay? I, I have to change it from volcano to exploding casket, so I'll get right on that. But so we we talked a little bit early. So you know, you you have these stages where end of life, you are helping people sort of plan and make sense of their their life story and ethical wills, which we kind of glossed over. We talked about the death vigil. We talk about the mourning and the preparing somebody. You help them wash the body and put them on ice. Now, when you're putting somebody on ice, is this just regular, you know, ice cubes? Can you go to the freezer and you're stacking them on those? Like, how are you preserving this body and for how long and to what end for a home funeral versus a transportation issue? So you're going to need to use dry ice for it. For smaller bodies... In, in the case that it is a child, you can use those really nice freezer packs that have so that it doesn't freeze the body. You don't want that, but we do want to keep it keep it all cool. Dry ice is what you use, and we got to make sure that that gets transported safely because it is yeah. very dangerous if you mess with it wrong. What you do is you just wrap it in sheets and put it under sort of the large areas, so under the shoulders, under the, the torso, uh, under the hips. Um, and what that does is it just keeps the temperature of the body cooler, and so it slows decomposition heavily. It's usually need about 40 pounds of dry ice right at the beginning, and that evaporates, so you need to get like 20 more pounds the next day or something like that. You don't want to do that for too long. You can keep a, a body preserved for a few days, long enough to get a, everyone in for the memorial. Yeah. Okay. And th now, one of the things that we as doctors almost never really do get a chance to see, but people are constantly talking about on... I don't know, crime shows and hospital shows and dramas where people die is rigor mortis. Very, very well known to the general public, but not very often seen. Is this mm -hmm. something that you've been trained in or had exposure to? Or trained in, yes. This is especially important in home funerals because it becomes very, very difficult to dress a body that has gone into rigor mortis because you can no longer really move the arms or anything to get to get them in anywhere. Uh, so it it happens like two to four hours after the death and then will stay for about wow. a day. So you really do want to get the body cleaned and dressed and in the position that you want the body to be in for the memorial in that win in that two to four hour window. 
You know, uh, I have to ask. I'm curious because this is all, and maybe this is like I'm um, going more into like the physiology. But if this is all from muscle contraction, I almost wonder if like paralytics that we use medically could have a role here to like prevent rigor mortis and to relax the body so that you could work with it. That's a good thought. I mean, you don't have circulating blood volume anymore, so it's going to well, be hard, difficult to get the uh, paralytics the into the muscle tissue. Is that you're the energy that is spent in order for muscles to move, a lot of that energy is spent actually contracting, or sorry, relaxing the muscle. Remember? So if you relaxing. have all of a sudden yeah. you have an energy deficit, then regardless of what you do in terms of paralytics, which usually I, I would say pretty commonly work on the, the nerves, right? So the nerve impulses that go down. So, it would be... Hey everyone, I've been on the go recently. Phoenix, Kansas City, Chicago. If you're like me and have a home but aren't always at home, you have an Airbnb. Hosting your home or a spare room is a very practical side hustle. If you live in a big game town, you can Airbnb your place for fans to stay in. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash post. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. It would be rather useless on muscles which are actually contracted up because there's no energy available for turning over the little machinery which allows muscles to relax. We've all heard the term <laughs> dead weight and uh, it may be a surprise to many people to find that when you have set into rigor mortis so when somebody is not among the living they are very heavy, and I'm not necessarily talking about obese people or muscular people. I'm simply saying you can have even the tiniest little, you know, 80-pound elderly person, and once they are truly deceased, to use the Mel Brooks term, you know, <laughs> not quite dead and truly dead, they are very, very heavy. And you mentioned, Jasmine, that you actually are more involved with the, the direction and the helping of family members. Have you ever had to, to try and lift a dead body? I have not personally, but I can tell is you Is this how. something they warned you? Yeah, is this something they warned you about, that people do become very heavy post-death? They did, they did. Laura Siba, who, who taught my class, would not have let me go out into the world without knowing how to lift a body. The best way to do it in the home funeral is to, you sort of make... A, a stretcher sort of of your own if you roll the sheet that they're lying on very very close to the body it makes sort of a handhold uh, mm -hmm. and you need about six people to lift a body and so they they roll the sheet up very close to the body and then everyone lifts at the same time and you all sort of walk that way yeah it's surprisingly heavy we, we mentioned briefly, and I know we sort of joked a little bit about it, but you said there's after-death doulas, too. In addition to the home funerals and, and helping with the mourning and taking care of certain services or contacting things for the family, what else might an after-death doula do? 
So we that separates into sort of two sections. There's the morning doulas, which will help with the uh, funeral arrangements, the memorial arrangements, um, either doing things like taking clothes to the funeral home or being the point person, the contact person, so that the family has a little more space to grieve and they don't also have to arrange everything, to helping just clean or do some little things just to give space to people who are grieving. And then there is also uh, help with artifact organization, which is sort of, you know, my my mother has passed and now I have a house full of things and I don't know what to do. And, you know, I, I don't know what to do and everything here belongs to my mother and I cannot throw away things that have her handwriting on it and, and the, the grief involved with having to get rid of material possessions. So helping people navigate that and end up with a, a collection that is a small and manageable but meaningful that they can take with them and help remove the rest, whether it's through estate sales or through donations or charity or free cycle, which is a program that I learned about where you can just give people things. And the nice thing is that those people often need those things. So you can feel like your loved one's artifacts are going to a good purpose. Uh, Do you have to be involved with legal services or a lawyer in order to... So I I myself wouldn't retain a lawyer, but I would advise someone to retain a lawyer. They would they would yeah. probably want to get a lawyer involved. Yep. It's good to have lawyers. Lawyers are useful. Um, and we talked about sort of the five different kinds of of doula or death doula duties. Wow, that's a tongue twister. Uh, but but let me ask in terms of of this training. I know one of the big controversies once I started researching death doulas is that. There's no formally recognized national training body. So what sort of things are, are you trained in? Have you noticed, have you met any other death doulas who have been trained differently? Do you choose a focus once you are doulaing? How does that work? So, yeah, definitely there's no formal recognized national standard. Uh, I, I know because I was, I was also doing research and looking and I couldn't find anything. So... I found a, a lot of different programs. They can be anything from weekend intensives that are like 22-hour classes to multi-month programs. Uh, when I was doing my in- initial research on it, I just looked for what seemed to be the most rigorous client-centered course. Sorry, The most rigor mortis. There you go. Get it all out. Uh, and so, so I ended up with a program called Mom Doolery, which was uh, initially. I know, That's I know, awesome. I laughed too. I, I thought this is, this is a crazy name, but it was the best program that I could find, and it is taught by Laura Seba, who is a birth and death doula in New York. What made it the best program you could find? Mm-hmm. So it was a sixteen-week program that I took, um, which appealed to me because I thought, you know, I don't, I can't possibly learn everything that I want to learn in 22 hours. Not that I, not that I tried. Maybe I'm sure that their programs are excellent, but I I wanted to sort of shove as much knowledge as I could into my head. And I thought longer programs probably better. And there, there was a phenomenal amount of 
paperwork talking about the standards of the program that they were hoping would be upheld, uh, the, the importance of the relationship with the client. We talked a lot about legal questions and how to write contracts for ourselves. And so it was really well put together. Did you have any uh, practical part of uh, your training as well? You know how doctors, when we go through our medical school, we actually have to get in the field. You know, we do our residencies. Did you also have any of that? Yeah, like an yeah. apprenticeship. Uh, we were assigned to, uh, we went out to talk to funeral homeowners as part of it. We went out and did some end-of-life consulting, which is meeting with people uh, for about three hours and going over all the paperwork and talking about the, the end-of-life process. Uh, so we, we did go out and do some practical work. You didn't... Was that under the mentorship of a certified death doula? It was not. I was alone. Oh my gosh. Uh, <laughs> I, so in Chicago, that I know of, there are three sort of professionals. One of them is me. Uh, <laughs> and there is, there right. is one. Someone's got to be the one first woman. one, man. Right. So, so there are two others that I could find, and both of them were home funeral guides. So there are no other death doulas per se in this area which is a difficulty because sort of trying to break into the funeral industry is scary. It's, it's very scary to be part of a new profession and to try to get people to take you seriously. Wow. It's also difficult because since I'm on call for death vigils, what happens if something happens? What, what happens if I'm dying <laughs> during that time, you know? Who, who covers for me? Because there, there isn't really anyone. And so finding hospice volunteers is really important. People who are, are also either hospice nurses or previous hospice nurses, people who are able to be in that situation as backup. Although I'm, I'm hoping that I inspire some people in the area to become death doulas so that we can cover each other. Yeah. And so, Jazz, if you're kind of solo and, you know, the, the field is kind of, it sounds like it's growing at this time. Mm-hmm. It's, uh, Definitely. Field. So how do they find you? They find me on the internet where you find all things. <laughs> uh, all right. Alternately, uh, so I'm, I'm running a book club okay. about death and mortality. Also, so word of mouth, again, is, is very important. If, if you take good care of people, they'll remember when their friends start talking. When their friends start where, dying, yeah. they'll remember you. <laughs> Harsh but true. Yeah. They'll they'll remember and say, you know, she took really good care of my mom. I think she could help you also. So that's that's really important. Working with funeral homes and hospices to see if if they have any clients that they think would benefit from that kind of care. Flyers, the good old fashioned way, you know, posting things. Sure. Uh, and then seeing maybe if the public library wants an end of life concerns lecture or something like that. But mostly it's who you know. And I found a lot of people are coming to me with questions once I've, I've put it out there that I'm able to talk about this and, and qualified to answer some questions. Oh, what's on Wonderful. your book, bar, uh, book club list? Are, are there any good books you recommend for people who are interested in this? So many things are on my book club list. Um, let's see. I was just reading Caitlin Doughty's book. Uh, smoke, smoke gets in your eyes. Other lessons from the crematory. So I had just finished that today, and it was wonderful. I'm looking for a good before bedtime. Before bedtime. When breath becomes air by Paul Kalanithi, who was a brain surgeon, hmm. um, 
who got cancer. And so his, his story, it was, it was wonderful, wonderful book. We read some things by Atul Gawande. We just read Elizabeth Alexander's The Light of the World. is a memoir about the death of her husband. So we, we really run the entire way. We're, we're doing death perspective. We're doing some satire. We're doing funeral industry exposés. I could find... I'd like to add in, as, as a recommendation on my end, the Tibetan book of living and dying by Sogyal Rinpoche, which is uh, kind of, he added to the, the existing Tibetan book of the dead, which is not the Necronomicon. <laughs> it is it is sort of the funeral process book uh, based around helping, you know, almost a, a guide for Tibetan death doulas, I guess, would be Mm-hmm. talking with you how I would describe it. And it was a very interesting thing describing. So uh, let me ask before we go any further, how did you first become interested in this field or aware of it? What a long story. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so, it's okay. We've got time. Listen. Um, so my, my mother told me that when I was five years old, I came up to her and said, I know what death is, and then turned around and left. Uh, <laughs> oh, oh so, that's, this, this is like a superhero origin story <laughs> right my mother wrote about it in her journal like what what have i given birth to what is this this is the I'm, little I'm just, boy well maybe her mother was reading her the tibetan book of death before bedtime who knows yeah then. right i mean who, who knows? knows who knows it could have been um but it, it sort of has always been in, in the back of my mind. I've thought a lot about mortality, my own, other things. Um, I was looking at the, the possibility of going into the medical field myself for a while, probably as a hospice nurse. Um, and then I don't have any money, so <laughs> I couldn't really go to nursing school. Maybe like elder care companions or something like that, and ended up reading an article that also talked about death doulas, and I was like, what is that? I'm very excited. So I did some research and found it, and it was great. I'm also I'm also part of the, the dance macabre at the Bristol Renaissance Fair, so death has been a part of my life for quite some time. <laughs> wow. Let me ask this. In terms of one of the things that I think would probably make it harder to attract people to the field is that I think a lot of people have the perception that being around death so much can be very overwhelming to a lot of people. And I'm sure that's the case for anybody. How would you say you've, I guess for lack of a better word, normalized other people's deaths into your life and into your career? Uh, I wouldn't say... Well, I guess normalize is right. Humans can normalize pretty much anything. Um, but it's it's important not to be detached because it's... so the the being present and uh, really being involved with this process is part of what's so important about this field. So there's a lot of self-care involved. You need to make space for yourself. Uh, You need to make sure that, you know, as much as you're making sure that the family members are eating and drinking and taking care of themselves, you need to make sure that you are eating and drinking and taking care of yourself uh, and that you have other death professionals to talk to. Apart from that, it's it's really not all that morbid. It's it's a lot about life. You end up talking a lot about life, how people have lived their lives, their history, 
the connections that people make, the the loves that they have in their lives, and you you listen to people talking about how they love the sunrise and that it seems really special, and you think, I see that thing every day. I don't see it every day. I don't wake up at any time to see the sunrise. <laughs> if I did. <laughs> but presumably there are people out there who see this every day, and, and they like it. And you start thinking of that as beautiful. Uh, you start thinking about bees or bushes or the way that water goes or the way that your cat smells, even if it's terrible. And it is. Uh, <laughs> as, as being part of life and being celebrated because of that so it's it's been a it's been a gift far from thinking too much about death and the end it has made me much more appreciative of everything that life has but do you need any downtime after let's say a client or two because i i find myself after a couple of shifts i need a few days you know just to readjust just because you know sometimes it gets intense definitely uh, definitely you got to get that self-care in there. Um, you can't pour out an empty glass. So it's it's kind of a, a freelancing position, I guess. So if, if I'm not able to take clients, I just don't take clients. Uh, or I make sure that I only have one death vigil client a month, something like that, just to make sure that I'm, I'm taking care of myself in advance. And that's, you know, obviously burnout certainly would be a concern if you're watching one person die a month for an indefinite amount of time. Um, what is your preferred method of, you know, getting in some treat-yourself time? <laughs> getting in some treat-yourself time? Really, really simple things. I like, uh, I dance. Dancing is good. Getting involved in muscles, so like swimming or running or, or any of that sort of gets you back in your body instead of in your brain. <laughs> spending time with like small children and animals is really good yeah, they're yeah, very yeah. uncomplicated they're both very uplifting i can yeah for that. absolutely yeah. okay uh things that are things that are uncomplicated are good yeah. and i know we've been we've kind of very much danced around this whole issue it sounds like you are providing a very very in-depth and intense level of service what does this cost a client you know what are you paid for these work? Are you paid for this work? What, what does this cost? It is paid. Um, we, a lot of us do pro bono work as well. Um, my specific set of people that I want to do pro bono work for is people who are in hospice programs who do not have family, either because their family is uh, in another country or because they are the last of their family. Uh, so being there for people who just don't have anyone. As far as the rest, it's been really difficult to think about price because it's not necessarily work that I want to charge for. You know, I want to I want to be there for people, but until we have a revolution and overthrow capitalism, I have to eat. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> eating eating's a big deal. Eating's a big deal. Yeah. I like to I like to have a house or somewhere I can I can not be rained on. Yeah. Um, those, those things are important. Absolutely. Yeah, eating. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so it's it's hard if you wanted an like an entire from end of life planning all the way through home funeral and mourning um probably somewhere around 1500 wow okay i think in there and this uh, is something and- that really the world of like insurance and things haven't really caught up with yeah so there are some yeah. insurance 
places that will pay you for birth doulas, I know, and I'm okay. not sure whether or not you can claim death doula services, but you should always try. Right. The ultimate pre-existing condition. <laughs> Mortality, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I can't take it. Someday you'll die. (laughs) So we have spent a lot of time talking about death on the show. I have to tell you, this is the most fun that I've had doing it in quite some time. So let's, let's bring some travel back into this and talk a little bit about funeral traditions around the world. Because there's some fun ones which you may or may not be aware of. And I'd like to get... Your take as somebody who is, you know, deeply invested in in the world of mortality. My my first question to you is going to be: If we're going to talk about death in America, like what rating does this podcast have? Am I allowed to swear? Oh, you yeah, can yeah. swear <laughs> as much. As- we we don't have any funding or anybody who's going to be like. That's great. It's allowed and encouraged to swear. I yeah. think our disconnection from death in this country is. Fucking disgraceful. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. <laughs> uh, very, very harsh. All right, very harsh. But no, the, that, that is not an overstatement. I, I will, I will agree with there's, that. Right. Yeah. There we go. And it was um, that was very cathartic. Um, bodies sort of get hurried from place to place. A lot of places cover them up to make sure that people aren't seeing them. We we try. So hard to cover up death, to brush it under the carpet, to make it look beautiful with embalming and makeup, and put a nice face on it, and then you know you get you get ten minutes or an hour or something to look at your loved one, and then you have to deal with all of these people coming in for the funeral, and then they go away, and then they go in the ground, and it's so harmful to the grief process. It's so death avoidant. And we have uh, to stop all of that business. <laughs> well, have you noticed a difference in if, if there's a cultural influence? I'm talking about, you know, I, I don't know if people from different cultures have different preferences here with your work. Even even parts of the country, the Midwest versus, you know, New York, where you trained, or, you know, out, mm-hmm. out West. But have you noticed have any not. cultural differences? I have been talking with the, the good people over at Chicago Jewish Funerals, and so I, I took a class with their director, David Jacobson, about Jewish burials uh, and the, the funeral traditions there, which are much different and actually are very close to green burial that uh, we're sort of seeing a trend going towards, making sure that, that everything is able to, to decompose and break down and go into the earth and not using any metal in the caskets and everything so the the jewish people have been doing green burial for a very very long time and we're just sort of getting around back to it which i find really interesting no 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 it's time and time again what happens especially with the extremes of life so birth and death we tend to climb this ladder of technology to a certain point where mm-hmm. we're like, oh, we're conquering this. We're getting better than this. We're we're overcoming this, and we climb and climb and climb, and then we, you know, genuinely, I think, uh, as a society, we have a moment of clarity where we say, oh, you know, if we're not as good as we thought we were, <laughs> and I think it's fair to say that. We all have to uh, contend with uh, with that progression, 
So we do. We every single time, you know, we we sort of climb out of this uh, this attitude of uh, oh, you know, death. We you know, medical world. We have to prevent death, no matter what. You you've got to stop that person from dying. And then you know, we got to slowly climb back and say, no, no, it's not so bad. Take it easy. Back it up. Definitely. Mm-hmm. Uh, having having death be viewed as failure must be absolutely crushing it's horrifying it's absolutely yeah when and and we're lucky i think our generation ward pros josh myself we were not confronted with that we were very much uh, living in a world where our contemporaries were taking care of us they said no you know you don't have to think about death that way that's I definitely did not have that experience. Um, really? In fact, part of the whole reason I got into palliative care is I was one of the only members of my residency class who was comfortable having these discussions and who was willing to recognize that, guys, every single person in this hospital is going to die and there is not a damn thing we can do about it. <laughs> now, obviously, it's all happening on different timelines, but... You know, I think my experience has been you find one or two mentors who impress you with the fact that they can sit down and have these difficult conversations and show that people overall, I I found that the people I went in and I talked to who decided to make themselves do not resuscitate, who decided to make themselves hospice, overall always seemed to me like they were happier and more comfortable and generally more at peace than my patients who would be fighting, kicking, and screaming, you know, to have life pried out of their cold, dead hands. So I would say it was really seeing the difference that swung me more than being told you can't ever fail. Um, Mm -hmm. we're, We're still told that even today, and the only reason I've sort of gotten away from that is I have built myself a lot more into the palliative world where we look at making sure the highest quality of life and death is achieved rather than just staving death off. I will mm. say that our disconnect, I, I agree with, um, I agree with uh, Jasmine that our, our culture is still has a problem with a disconnect with death. And a lot of patients, family members, and doctors and nurses sometimes are in denial about the fact that everyone, death is a part of life. And when, when we are in denial about that, uh, the, our actions, our treatment plans are just the way we treat our patients and ourselves don't quite match up with what is actually going on. And that's, that's part of what that stress comes from. Mm-hmm. I, well, here's the other side of that too. Like when we talk about death as failure, like when, outcomes are judged like a lot of it is judged based on morbidity or mortality scores and the higher those scores are the worse quote-unquote or the higher percentage of morbidity and mortality like equates to higher failure of care or substandard of care so it's not just our mental disconnect but we often feel pressure to keep people alive so that our own metrics are met right surgeons and cardiologists are judged based on their complication rates and how many of their um of their patients die and this may or may not be you know this may or may not be the best metric uh in the grand scheme of things sure and you guys are talking about in terms of uh 
your uh, even your insurance payout and your ability to you know get draw a salary that kind of a thing okay. mm-hmm. yeah. yeah so let's let's veer back into as I said a little bit different so I want to take you guys through a couple different funeral traditions in places we've traveled and then uh, I'd like to get a travel story from you Jasmine so here's a few places I want to tell you where death is handled very different from the U.S. Mongolia, heavy Buddhist influence. They just leave people out effectively for the wolves, but really more for the vultures. Um, Birds, (laughs) Papua New Guinea, where we will be traveling this coming September, has 84 different tribes and about 86 different burial customs. Uh, Some of them include and are not limited to mummifying the corpses of ancestors and displaying them in the center of the village to guard the village and hone the memory. So every day you walk out, you're not only reminded that you will die, but that you will be watching over the village after you go and people will be around with you. Uh, There is rumors, I, I believe it has by and large been stamped out, but there is a degree of cannibalism where there would be the consumption of loved ones to take them into yourself. Uh, this is very tribe-dependent and has never been witnessed, uh, only written about, or never been witnessed in modern day, only written about in some of the early exploration of the area. Of course, we know Mexico with their Day of the Dead is a much cheerier version, but my all-time favorite, I would have to say, is Madagascar, where I think you'll relate to this, Jasmine, as, as somebody who enjoys the dance macabre. Madagascar has a ritual known as Famadihana. And it is a ritual yearly exhumation of the corpses of ancestors. It's known as the turning of the bones. And they take them out, and once, once a year, once every couple years, ancestors are dug up. They are rewrapped and dressed in fresh cloth. And the family members dance with them around a tomb to live music. And it's done to honor and spend time with dead loved ones. And the rest of the time, they just don't talk about it at all so once a year you bring everybody up you spend time with them it's like oh grandma's coming to visit hasn't grandma been dead for 12 years well why should that stop her yeah. <laughs> um, I love and it. i just i thought that was a really i tried to picture what that would look like in the u.s and and that ended up in the zombie apocalypse uh scenarios um <laughs> Yeah, so I, I would love to see a turning of the bones and dancing with, and of course I've talked a couple times in the past about how my, my family members have, uh, a couple of my family members have on the process of dying stayed in the filing cabinet in the garage, which we refer to as the Dworetsky family mausoleum, en route <laughs> to their final destination. <laughs> Um, and that's, I'm sure, where I will end up for at least a while, too, filed under D for dead Doc Dworetsky. Nice. <laughs> but as I've said, this has been the most fun I have had talking about death in some time. But one of the things we love to cover in each of our episodes is we like to get what we call a just the tip, a little bit of a travel story to break away. We've talked about some heavy stuff this time, so it could be related to your work and studies, or it could just be a great time that you've had abroad. Where is a place that you would recommend any of our listeners travel to and see and should absolutely visit, do, or participate in before they die? And if you have a story with your experience, even better. 
Wow, can I have two places? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's great. That's I think everyone before they die should go to see Kyomizudera in Kyoto. Pure Water Temple, and it is the most beautiful place I have ever. It's my favorite place on earth. You can look out, especially at night. I like it at night. Go at night. And you look out, and there's this valley full of trees, and it's so dark. And then there are little spots of light where there are little temples in the forest. And it is just gorgeous. As far as fun, I would highly recommend going to Shinaga Plata in Switzerland. This is a, it's a very tall, flat place. You, you go up to it uh, with a funicular, which is the little going up the mountain thing. And you can walk around it. And you can also be tricked by your father into taking a six-hour hike to here. <laughs> so we, thought, we thought we were going around and my dad said let's go this way and we followed him because we we're fools <laughs> and instead of going around the top of the plateau and mind you I am like what, like 11 or something at this point and my, my sister is there as well and she's four years younger than I am so we, we had to put a stick of Toblerone chocolate out like carrot and stick it so that she would walk <laughs> And it was a beautiful right. walk. It was wonderful. It was like being in in the wild places of the earth, that there are still places where you can go and see only mountains and no people. And it was a, a beautiful walk, but it was six hours. So oh, God. After <laughs> that, take some chocolate. <laughs> is that the moment when you came back in and said, Mom, I definitely know what death is? <laughs> yeah, right? <laughs> now I, I know. Now yes. I know. That wraps up this this episode. Thank you so much for for joining us, Jasmine, and for teaching us about this amazing field. For any of our listeners out there who are interested in getting a hold of you, what is the best way to reach you? Do you have a, a Facebook, a Twitter, an email that you would prefer to be contacted by if they have questions, concerns, or want to engage your services? I'm, I'm working on it. Eventually, you'll be able to find me. I haven't thought of a business name yet, so it's just Jasmine Tomlins right now. But you can email me at j.m.tomlins at gmail.com. Or you can find me on Twitter, where I am sending out lovely death articles all the time and fun things that you can do with your cremains and other thoughts. At I was very happy about this. Uh, I'm at, at Rose of Karen. Karen, hmm. like the ferryman. Yeah, that's, that's beautiful. Definitely let all of our listeners know, no matter how old you are, please go out there, take care of any end-of-life care that you can possibly think of. Absolutely. You know, it's... it's this is not just for old people or yeah. sick people or, to like, do it. Yeah, do it now. It's genuinely and honestly, and I know it sounds morbid or weird or whatever it is, but it is never too early to think about this stuff. And I know Absolutely. that's... Yeah. I have a living yeah, will. And, 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 and think I, about what a gift it is if, if you know, something terrible and unthinkable were to happen and something happened and you died and you're young and uh, how much grief that would give your family and your friends and how much grief you could save them by having 
been prepared and let them take care of you the way that you want to be taken care of. So that wraps up this episode. As always, we would love for you to support us spiritually, emotionally, and financially. You can do that by leaving us comments and questions on our Facebook page at Travel Medicine Podcast, on our Twitter, on our Squarespace. All of the links are in the show notes. We would love if you could donate on any amount on Patreon. It helps us get uh, better sound equipment, better editing, better lessons for me so I can fix the sound and editing problems, and a whole <laughs> bunch of other issues that come up. This show is produced by me with a lot of help from all the folks you've heard here today, as well as many more. And until next time, as always, happy travels. Happy travels. Bye, everybody. Happy travels, everybody. Happy travels. The number one selling product of its kind with over 20 years of research and innovation. Botox Cosmetic, Anabotulinum Toxin A, is a prescription medicine used to temporarily make moderate to severe frown lines, crow's feet, and forehead lines look better in adults. Effects of Botox Cosmetic may spread hours to weeks after injection, causing serious symptoms. Alert your doctor right away as difficulty swallowing, speaking, breathing, eye problems, or muscle weakness may be a sign of a life-threatening condition. Patients with these conditions before injection are at highest risk. Don't receive Botox Cosmetic if you have a skin infection. Side effects may include allergic reactions, injection site pain, headache, eyebrow and eyelid drooping, and eyelid swelling. Allergic reactions can include rash, welts, asthma symptoms, and dizziness. Tell your doctor about medical history, muscle or nerve conditions including ALS or Lou Gehrig's disease, myasthenia gravis, or Lambert-Eaton syndrome and medications, including botulinum toxins, as these may increase the risk of serious side effects. For full safety information, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. See for yourself at BotoxCosmetic.com.